If I'm inventing value, I got my value, you got your value, uh, let's just vaguely tolerate each other, then we can't love each other because love has to display itself, as it were, against the background of a hierarchy of objective value. Otherwise, I don't know what, it, what I should will for you. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. This week, we're bringing you one of the plenary lectures from this year's Acton University, featuring Bishop Robert Barron speaking on the philosophical roots of wokeism. Wokeism is arguably the most influential public philosophy in our country today. It has worked its way into the minds and hearts of our young people, into the world of entertainment, and into the boardrooms of powerful corporations. But what is it precisely, and where did it come from? Bishop Barron argues in this presentation that wokeism is a popularization of critical theory, a farrago of ideas coming out of the French and German academies in the mid-20th century. Until we understand its origins in the thinking of Adorno, Horkheimer, Deirdre, Marcuse, and Foucault, we will not know how to critically engage with this dangerous philosophy. Bishop Robert Barron is the Bishop of the Diocese of Winona, Rochester in Minnesota, and the founder of Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. He is the host of Catholicism, a groundbreaking, award-winning documentary about the Catholic faith, which aired on PBS. Bishop Barron's more recent film series, Catholicism, The Pivotal Players, has won an Emmy Award and has been syndicated for national television. He is a number one Amazon bestselling author and has published numerous books, essays, and articles on theology and the spiritual life. He is a religion correspondent for NBC and has also appeared on Fox News, CNN, and EWTN. Bishop Barron's website, wordonfire.org, reaches millions of people each year, and he is one of the world's most followed Catholics on social media. His YouTube videos have been viewed over 100 million times, and he has over 300 million followers on Facebook. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It is my pleasure now to introduce this evening's plenary speaker. Bishop Robert Barron is the Bishop of the Diocese of Winona, Rochester in Minnesota and the founder of Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Bishop Barron received a master's degree in philosophy from the Catholic University of America and a doctorate in sacred theology from the Institut Catholique de Paris. He is the host of Catholicism, a groundbreaking award-winning documentary about the Catholic faith. Bishop Barron is also a number one Amazon best-selling author and one of the world's most followed Catholics on social media through his regular YouTube videos, Word on Fire podcast, and daily reflections. His evangelistic work is seen and reached millions of people every year 
And on a personal note, I should add that my own family has benefited greatly from Catholicism and one of my go-to podcasts for commentary, philosophy, faith, and culture is his Word on Fire podcast. So please join me in welcoming Bishop Robert Barron. Well, thank you, kind sir, for that. Thanks, everybody. I can't see you now with the lights in my eyes, but what a magnificent room just to come in this place tonight and see this uh, crowd. What a tribute to uh, Father Sirico and to the Acton Institute, uh, which I think has made a massive contribution to both church and society. So I want to pay tribute to Father Sirico, but to the board of directors, too. Just marvelous and a much needed conversation between the classical religious tradition and the economic and political traditions, a conversation that often, as you know, doesn't happen uh, creatively. So thank you for the invitation. Uh, Father has invited me before, but it was more difficult when I was in California. Now in Minnesota, it's a little easier flight over here to Grand Rapids. Listen, I want to talk to you tonight about um, wokeism, not because I like it, but because I hate it. And, and I... I think it's having a it's having a massively deleterious effect on our, our culture. It's found its way into almost every nook and cranny of our civilization now. One of our major political parties is largely organized now, it seems to me, to support wokeism. But I think it's very important, everybody, if we stand against it, as I do, that we do so in a sophisticated way. And to recognize that wokeism is not a um, ephemeral phenomenon uh, that came out of the summer of 2020. Wokeism has a um, long and easily recognizable, it seems to me, intellectual pedigree. And the more clearly we grasp that, the more creatively we'll be able to engage it. Uh, I'm going to begin not so much with a definition, but a description. Wokeism, I would say, is a popularization of critical theory. It's a popularization of critical theory. Critical theory having made its way now out into the streets. What's critical theory? Well, it's a movement that obtained largely in the French and German academies in the middle of the 20th century. Think of people such as Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, Herbert Marcuse, Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, maybe the major names. But critical theory found its way in the late 60s and 70s into the American Academy. I just finished a biography of René Girard, and Girard himself, though I think would be an opponent of wokeism, but he was involved in organizing a conference at Johns Hopkins in the late 60s, where uh, Derrida came over for the first time to these shores. And he said it was the moment when French structuralism and postmodernism made its way into the American Academy. Well, there it just stated, it seems to me, for several decades and then broke out as a kind of bacillus into the wider um, bloodstream of the society, indeed in that summer of 2020. So what I'm going to try to do tonight in this very brief compass is lay out some of the features of critical theory, which has now uh, expressed itself as wokeism, and then just to suggest how Catholic social theory stands dramatically athwart the assumptions behind wokeism. Okay, so here's the first quality, I think, of critical theory. What I will call 
a radicalization of the modern sense of the self, a radicalization of the modern sense of the self. Now, as you know, the two probably major figures in the emergence of typically modern philosophy would be Rene Descartes and Immanuel Kant. Uh, I've told my students over the years, if you want to see the place where modernity was born, you can find it. It's in the German city of Ulm. Because Descartes was wandering around with the French army and he, he slipped off. He was searching for the foundations of philosophy. And he said he retreated to a heated room in the city of Ulm. And there he came up with the famous cogito ergo sum, right? I can doubt everything. I can doubt the received tradition. I can doubt religion. I can doubt even sense experience. But the one thing I can't possibly doubt is that I'm doubting. Hence, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore, I am. Now, notice the move, though, that Descartes makes here is he compels the objective to come before the bar of the subjective for adjudication. Because now the cogito reigns supreme as the arbiter of truth. Also on this basis, he distinguishes between what he calls res extense, extended things out there, and then res cogitantes, thinking things in here. The radical division between body and soul is bequeathed to modernity as a typical anthropology. Now, the second figure, Immanuel Kant, you see it famously in his critique of pure reason when the classical metaphysical categories of time and space and identity and substance are not out there in the world. They're already in here as a priori structures of the mind, right? So we project these realities onto the world. Same thing in Kant's moral theory. Remember, he says the only thing that can be called good without qualification is a goodwill. That means I'm not looking to, to my acts in the world to determine what's right or wrong. I'm looking at the quality of the will that chooses. The move, again, privileging the interior over the exterior. I think you could argue, read Cyril O'Regan on this point, uh, that Descartes and Kant do represent a recovery of ancient Gnosticism, which in a very similar way privileged the sort of inside over the outside, tended to see the body as something dangerous and problematic and the real self inside. Now, critical theory, I would argue, radicalizes this modern sense of the self. So the interior, the real me in here, is dramatically privileged over what's out there, over the exteriority of the body. If you don't see this influence in present-day gender theory, you're not paying attention. I mean, what do we hear all the time? And it's extraordinary to me how taken for granted it is, though it's a terribly uh, erroneous uh, anthropology. But it's taken for granted. Well, I mean, deep down inside, this is who I am. It just doesn't correspond to my body, so I have to change my body accordingly. That's a radicalized modern self, the privileging of the interior over the exterior. Just by way of contrast, consider this little line from St. Thomas Aquinas, my intellectual hero. Aquinas says, the soul is in the body, yes, but not as contained by it, 
but rather as containing it. Let me say that again, because I think there's a whole revolution in consciousness there. The soul is in the body, yes, but not as contained by it, like it's deep down in here, hidden someplace, but rather as containing it. The body, Thomas calls it the form of the body, the soul rather, the form of the body, includes the body, animates the body, makes the body what it is. Therefore, this dichotomization between the real me in here and the body out there doesn't work. It's just erroneous anthropology. So there's a first theme. The radicalized modern self, I think we have to stand athwart that. Here's a second quality of critical theory and therefore of wokeism. The relativization of the truth. One of the principal marks, I think, of postmodernism and critical theory is a deep skepticism in regard to any truth claims, except their own, by the way. <laughs> that's, that's all, that argument goes back to Plato and Augustine. Whenever you take a radically skeptical position, well, what about your own theorizing? But well, hang on. I think they take a cue here from Nietzsche's perspectivalism, that you know, we never get a grasp of the way things are, but only our limited perspective on them. So they consistently pull back the curtain on truth claims to reveal the power plays that, you know, that are actually going on. I'll come back to that. But I think the inspiration for much of this is in maybe the patron saint of critical theory, namely Jacques Derrida. His densely complex texts, famously unreadable, but they function as a kind of scripture for postmodernism. Derrida, as you know, is famous for the deconstructionist approach. Now, what does he mean? Well, he deconstructs what he calls the logocentric approach of classical philosophy, which is to say, logos, language, words, can get us in touch with reality. Think of Aquinas, the, the correspondence of mind to reality mediated by language. It gives us access to the way things are. Derrida deconstructs that kind of logocentrism. And he says famously in his French, Il n'y a pas de hors texte. There's nothing outside the text. I've got a text, and in classical thought, this text will get me in touch with the way things are. It'll get me in touch with the truth. But for Derrida, in n'y a pas de hors text. There's nothing outside the text. Rather, what you have is an endless play of what he calls différence, difference. This, this word is not like that word, and this word relates to another one which is not like that one. And I stay permanently within the context of the text, meaning always deferred, and hence his famous play on words, différence, the difference of words, leads to différence, meaning deferral of meaning. I never know what things really are. It's always open-ended. Does that sound familiar? I mean, it's, it's in the common rhetoric of even teenagers today, right? They've, it's become the default position of, of most young people. There's no such thing as a real grasp of truth, but only an endless play of opinion, perspective, point of view, difference and difference, 
always deferring meaning. I heard uh, Derrida at a conference once, someone asked him, how would you define deconstruction? And he answered in his French, he said, deconstruction means, viens, oui, oui, come, yes, yes. Now see, that sounds nice, but what does he mean? He means, look, I, I, I don't, this, this isn't the final answer here. This is not the truth, but there's always something new that can come, something fresh, some new way of configuring a text, some new way of thinking about it. Viens, oui, oui. Permanent deferral of meaning and truth. That's a basic insight of Derrida. And what was once sort of whispered in the, you know, recherche heights of the French Academy has come now to be, as I say, the default position. You know, who am I? What's the purpose of my life? Uh, what gender am I? Viens, oui, oui, you know. Come on, I'll think of it in a fresh way. Don't be tied to old perspectives. Be open, right? You know, here's something that, when you read the, uh, the woke theorists today, the comically absurd position that even math and science, even basic mathematical uh, statements, two plus two equals four. No, no, that's an expression of white supremacy. That's an expression, I'm not, do you think I'm joking? I mean, that's exactly what they'll say, that math and science, even in these fundamental ways, are just plays of power because you can never say that something is true. Yeah, we, we, always a new perspective. Okay, third quality of critical theory, and therefore wokeism, what I would call a fundamentally antagonistic social theory. Now, here are the influence of Karl Marx, and Karl Marx is all over critical theory, and therefore, at least implicitly, all over wokeism. Marx, as you know, basing himself on Hegel's dialectical sensibility, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, the constant, you know, uh, ongoing development of absolute spirit, all of that. Marx takes that in, turns it on its head, makes it a dialectical materialism, and therefore reads history as the endless play, the antagonistic conflict between warring groups. He also took from Hegel, and this is very influential, it seems to me, in the present day conversation, he took in Hegel's idea of the master-slave relationship. And when you read Hegel on that, it is fascinating. He's got wonderful insights about it. But that category of master-slave becomes a dominant category in Marx. What you have in history is a constant antagonistic play between the domineering one and those who are dominated masters and slaves. What's the purpose of Marxist social theory, as he famously says? Philosophers have so far only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. So the purpose of Marxist philosophy is to foment a class struggle, foment the rebellion of the slaves against the masters to bring about the communist uh, revolution. Watch how the uh, critical theorists and the wokeists today take this basic Marxist idea, but they extrapolate from it. So it's not restricted to the economic 
oppressors and oppressed, but all sorts of other forms of masters and slaves. So we talk about colonial oppression, sexual oppression, racial oppression, gender oppression, etc. But the same dynamic holds that we have a master-slave, oppressor-oppressed binary. Speaking of binaries, again the influence of Jacques Derrida. In Derrida's analysis of language, he says that there are basic binaries within our linguistic system, and our, our um, sense of meaning often comes from how we play these binaries off one another. What does he mean? Well, male, female, straight, queer, Western, non-Western, civilized, uncivilized, white, black, etc. These binaries, Derrida says, haunt our language, and it's the way we tend to generate meaning. So he says, for example, male, straight, civilized, and white tends to rule over female, queer, non-Western, and uncivilized. It's almost like a computer language. You know, it's, it's on or off. It's one or it's zero. You have these binary options within the linguistic structure. I think that's found its way very much into wokest uh, social theory. What we have are these binary oppositions. Much of the strategy, Marxist in form, remains the same. To speak for those who are considered on the underside of these binaries. To foment, indeed, a struggle between the binaries of oppressor and oppressed. Notice how in so much of the woke theorizing, you, you have to fall on one side or the other of this binary. There's no third option. There's no blending of them. You're one or the other. That's the antagonistic social theory. Fourthly, and this again is very much from Marx, the play of substructure and superstructure. I was especially struck in the summer of 2020 by this because I heard it all the time in the rhetoric of the woke activists. Remember in Marx's social theory, Marx is a radical reductionist, right? I mean, everything comes down to economics. It comes down to that basic economic struggle. That's the core of a society. That's the substructure. And then around it, Karl Marx said, there emerges this massively complex superstructure whose sole purpose is to protect and defend the substructure. So for Marx, you got economics. For In his case, it was the capitalist economy. And then around it is everything else in society. Politics, art, entertainment, sports, religion, the military, government, all of it is simply part of the superstructural defense mechanism by which that substructure is defended. You know, like in Marx's theorizing, as you know, um, what's the whole point of politics? Just to defend the capitalist substructure. That's all politicians are finally interested in. What's the entire purpose of the military? To protect economic interests. That's why we go to war. And Marxists, if you read them to this day, will defend or describe every war ever fought as basically an economic uh, struggle. How about the arts? 
Well, the arts are patronized by wealthy people, and the arts tend, therefore, to support and protect the wealth-generating quality of the capitalist economy. Maybe most famously for Marx, religion. So what's the, the point of people like me? Well, I'm a drug dealer for Marx, because religion is the opium of the masses, right? It's meant to, it's meant to, to drug us into a kind of you know, insensibility, so we don't realize the pain produced by the oppressive economic system we're in. Why are people like me fostered by a civil society? Because it's good for everybody that there are drug dealers around to calm people down. Religion's whole purpose, again, is to protect the economic substructure. Well, again, can you see this practically everywhere in wokeism? The conviction that, now again, choose your form of oppression, whatever you know, your theory is, whether it's gender oppression, it's, it's colonialism, it's uh, slavery, that that's what stands at the heart of the civil society. And everything else exists simply for the sake of protecting it. You know, a good example of this is the 1619 Project, right? Uh, what does it all come down to? Slavery. And, and the attempt to protect and defend the slave economy. And so that project, in a very Marxist way, reads all of society through that very particular lens. Um, did you notice that during the, the summer of 2020, these almost manic attempts to tear down the various institutions of our society, you know, most famously defund the police, but there were lots of attempts, seems to me, tear down the legal structure, tear down the government, tear down the police department. Well, that's part of a Marxist form of analysis. If these things exist simply to protect a form of oppression, then we should get rid of them. Okay, I've got eight minutes. Lastly, I think critical theory, and therefore wokeism, sees power as the supreme category. Power as the supreme category. You know, if you're interested in the history of philosophy, this is a very intriguing proposal. Because power is um, power's talked about a lot by the major philosophers. Think of someone like Thomas Aquinas. He would see God as all-powerful, yes, indeed. But he would also see God as simple. Therefore, all the divine attributes and qualities are finally one. Thus, God's power cannot be at odds with God's manner of being. Now you say, well, that's very abstract, but there's a very interesting upshot to all that. Could God, in his infinite power, make it the case that 2 plus 2 equals 5? Well, heck, he's infinitely powerful. I, I guess, why not? Could God, in his infinite power, make adultery a virtue? Well, I guess. I mean, he's declared adultery to be bad, but could he declare it something good? I, I suppose he could, right? Thomas's answer is, well, of course not, because you're driving a wedge thereby between God's power and God's manner of being. Therefore, it's no restriction on God's power to say God can't make 2 plus 2 equal to 5. Because 2 plus 2 being equal to 4 is simply a participation in the truth that God is, right? 
It, it's no limitation on God's power to say he can't make adultery a, a virtue, because that would be at odds with his own manner of being. Thomas famously asks, can God sin? Well, and the objector says, well, of course God can sin. God is infinitely powerful. Heck, I can sin. And so why couldn't God sin? Well, no, says Aquinas. Of course, God can't sin. It would be repugnant to his manner of being. Okay, now why is this important? Because when you get past Aquinas now, into the late medieval and early modern periods, something has shifted. What emerges is a voluntaristic view, so voluntas, will, where the primacy of the will is emphasized. Indeed, God's potentia absoluta, his absolute power, is divorced from his being. So that, indeed, René Descartes can say, if God so chose, two plus two could be equal to five. The voluntaristic God has a power that can overrule, redefine reality. See, and that's a departure from what we found in Aquinas. Is it accidental, therefore, that in many of the modern philosophers, power becomes hyperemphasized? You see, for example, in Schopenhauer, you see it maybe most obviously in Friedrich Nietzsche. God is dead, right? Therefore, where did that potentia absoluta go? It went to me. It went to us. We now have this will to power. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me who I am. I can decide on the basis of my absolute freedom, the nature of reality. Does that begin to sound familiar? I think coming right up out of the voluntaristic shift in late medieval, early modern philosophy to the contemporary period, the voluntaristic God has morphed into the voluntaristic, all-creating, all-defining self. You know, many in this room will remember Casey versus Planned Parenthood, right, 1992, the famous, infamous decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in an uh, abortion case, where the justices said it, it belongs to the nature of liberty to determine the meaning of life and of existence. Oh, is that all I get to decide? <laughs> but see, what is that? But that's, again, the, the transplanting of the potentia absoluta of God now into the potentia absoluta of the self. Now, Along with Derrida, I would say the most influential of these um, critical theorists is Michel Foucault. You heard that I was a doctoral student in Paris as many years ago, and I, I arrived in 1989 in Paris. Foucault died in 1984, and you know how Paris, there's a, there's a restaurant and a bookstore on every block, right? And as you walk around Paris those days, looking out from the window of every bookstore, was the sort of owlish visage of Michel Foucault. I mean, he was the dominant philosophical figure. What stands at the heart of his philosophy? 
all these claims to truth and to goodness and to value, and, you know, these are objectively the case, forget it. That's powerful people using language and coercion to hang on to their power. There's nothing objectively right or wrong about any of that. It's all finally about power. Listen to the wokest theorist today. It's Michel Foucault for the masses, right? Anyone, like the people in this room who would say, no, I think that's objectively true. Or I think that's objectively the morally right thing to do. No, no, no. I'm just going to pull back the curtain on that to show the plays of power. The capacity for self-invention, rampant. Games of power, everywhere. That's one of the marks of wokeism. Okay. So having just sketched those little moves, can I just say in conclusion, a quick word about Catholic social teaching. Our social teaching in the Catholic Church would indeed say that each individual person is a subject of infinite dignity, but not the creator of value. See, I, I think everybody, that is supremely dangerous talk. When we say, along with this sort of critical theory stuff, that, that the sovereign self invents value, we are on a very short road to a moral chaos. Rather, we would say, at the heart of our social theory ought to be love. What's love? Thomas Aquinas said, not a feeling, Love is an act of the will. It's to will the good of the other. If that's true, then I can't love anyone unless I have a keen sense of what is objectively good. If I'm inventing value, I got my value, you got your value, and let's just vaguely tolerate each other, then we can't love each other. Because love has to display itself, as it were, against the background of a hierarchy of objective value. Otherwise, I don't know what, it, what I should will for you. Catholic social theory, seems to me, stands athwart the value-generating self and stands in favor of a hierarchy of objective value, both epistemic and moral Secondly, Catholic social teaching does not advocate antagonism as the fundamental reality in the Marxist manner. Rather, it posits a cooperative view. Individuals cooperating with one another, indeed social classes cooperating with each other, owners and workers, you want to use the old kind of Marxist terms, cooperating with each other, it stands athwart the view that we have to see society in antagonistic terms. Also, Catholic social theory stands against the Marxist substructure, superstructure reading, seeing it as hopelessly simplistic and dangerous. Dangerous because it sees everything other than the substructure as, as a problem. It has to be unmasked or undone. 
Rather, Catholic social theory sees society as a very complex web of individuals and institutions subsisting in mutuality. But whenever you say, it all comes down to, now fill in the blank, you're wrong, right? Society is a complex web, and how beautiful for that very reason. Finally, it seems to me, Catholic social teaching decidedly does not hold to the primacy of power in this quasi-voluntarist way. Rather, it sees, I would say, justice and love as supreme. What's justice? Rendering to each his due. That's the classic Platonic definition. What's love, as I said, willing the good of the other. See, those are absolute values. It's a point I made in a talk I gave at Notre Dame a few months ago. They, the kids asked me about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I said, well, sure, those are values a secundum quid, as the medieval would say. They're, they're values, you know, depending on circumstances. They're values as far as they go. One thing I said to them was, you think you're a radically inclusive community here at Notre Dame? And the heads were nodding. I said, well, how many people were excluded from the admission process so that you could be included? That's where they, yeah, well, it's, it's a very simple point that inclusivity, sure, it's a good thing, secundum quid, you know, depending on circumstances and sometimes under certain circumstances. Same with, with the equity and inclusion. They're, they're good secundum quid. But see, justice and love are values in se. They're valuable in themselves. And, and the way to test that, could you ever imagine it would be right to do something unjust? Well, well no, of course not. It, would it ever be right and not to be loving? Well, well, no, of course not. Because those are absolute values. I think everybody, I'll close with this, that that's the reason why we should stand against the diversity, equity, inclusion, because it's like liberté, égalité, fraternité, right? It's like the, the triplet that came out of the French Revolution. Those two were values secundum quid. When you try to make secondary values primary values, you lead your nation by a short route to chaos. What we ought to cling to are those values that are in say good, like justice and love. Okay, that's the end of my little sketch. Um, I hope it gave you... <laughs> Thank you. I hope it just gave you some sense of how, how to engage wokeism uh, in an intellectually serious way. Mind you, they don't want to do that because they, they want to put it onto very emotional grounds. But I think it's very important for us to know where the system of thought came from. Listen, thank you again, everybody. Delightful to be with you tonight. Thanks. Well, thank you, Your Excellency. What an excellent talk. And we've got lots of questions coming in, and I'm going to go straight to them, even though I have several in the back of my own mind. You know, you ended in focusing on love and some of the yeah. key dimensions of Catholic social teaching that counter some of this wokeism. So there are a couple of questions from members of the audience that focus on this idea of love, one of which is, many young people embrace woke ideas with the good intention of seeking to love their neighbor and yeah. the poor. How can we show them that this is not true love? 
Yeah, and that's a, that's a typical rhetorical move, and I, I hear that all the time. Look, Bishop, doesn't wokeism just mean that we should be awake to social injustice and try to fight it on behalf of, of the underprivileged and so on? Sure, if that's what wokeism means, of course, then I'm woke and I'm all in favor of it. But that's not what it means. That, in fact, when you read the theorists, what you get is, I think, what I was describing. So, no, I, of course, if, if you see real injustice... You fight it. Mm. And to me, that's a, that's a basic principle of, of common decency as well as Catholic social teaching. Um, so if that's all you mean by, by wokeism, fine. Stick with love. You will the good of the other. Uh, and then that means you have to know what those goods are. Uh, um, that can't be a matter of your invention of, of goods that correspond to your you know, private desires. You've got some keen sense of the objective quality of it. So I would say, sure, stick with love, but but wokeism, as they dis, uh, their own theorists describe it, is much more than uh, just you know caring for the poor. So, so you mentioned that you need to also then know what the goods are that you're pursuing. And, and another question related to love is somebody had asked, how can we demonstrate to people that this ideology actually leads to ends that are quite sad and harmful? Yeah, well, I think it's obvious. I think it, it shows up in, in fact um, that when you walk down this path of I've got my values, you got your values, we're going to vaguely tolerate each other, um, we don't have real coherence in the society. We don't have real communio. We just have a sort of, um, you know, vague collection of individuals uh, uh, tolerating each other. So I, I think that's that's obvious in the, in the very antagonisms that are that are evident in our society. Go on social media any time of the day or night, and you want to see a, a Hobbesian antagonistic society. Um, so I, I think it, it's very plain that the disaffiliation from religion and the denial of objective moral and epistemic value has conduced toward a very contentious and litigious and dangerous society. I think that's plain. So, so given that, and if there are individuals that are claiming continually that there's it's relativism, whether in truth claims or in morality, are we then just left with simply a power struggle? Yeah, I think we are. That's the problem. That's exactly what happens. And Nietzsche was right. I mean, so if God is dead, well, then, then values are, are gone because values are grounded metaphysically in, in the supreme good or the unconditioned good. If that all disappears, what's left is the will to power. Mm. And who are you to tell me that I shouldn't assert my will whenever I can? Um, so I think that that happens as night follows day, that when God and objective value are marginalized. So that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, we have to re-enchant our young people, it seems to me. And it's great, it, it kind of heroes and geniuses in the artistic realm, in the epistemic realm, in the moral order who display value. Mm. I think of someone like, you know, Dietrich von Hildebrand would use language like that, is that you, when you see something that's objectively valuable, it, it changes you. It, you're not in control of it. It's in control of you, right? It rearranges your own interiority. If something is merely subjectively satisfying, to use his language, well, then I'm in charge of it. I'm in control of it. It's kind of finding its way within my system of, of apprehension. But the objectively valuable, like Mother Teresa, you know, you see, or, or Maximilian Kolbe, like a great saint. Well, it, it, that rearranges you. 
or uh, Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. You know, I don't like it. <laughs> How silly to, to say something like that. Because Beethoven's Seventh Symphony is reworking your consciousness. It, it, it shapes your world. I, I think we have to reintroduce our young people to that wonderful realm of objective value, which makes life so much more fun and interesting than this self-invention business. I mean, God saved me from the little, what did Hemingway the, the, say, the well-lighted space of my own little tiny ego. Bore me to death with that. You know what I'm saying? But when, when an objective value appears, now life becomes rich and wonderful. So am I understanding you correctly then that it's effectively appealing through forms of beauty, that there yeah. might be a way to draw people, if, especially if you're being canceled and you can't even have dialogue. Maybe it's just a demonstration of, of forms well, of beauty. Right. One of my convictions, if you take the three transcendentals, um, the true and the good are really hard to get traction with today because of the relativism. But the beautiful has a way of sneaking past our resistance. You know, when you just show something, just read this, just look at this. It, it has a way of sneaking past our, our defenses and gets into people's psyches. I, I've argued... Um, like Brideshead Revisited, which is one of the, I think, the great Catholic novel of the 20th century. What first intrigued Charles Ryder, who's like a lot of people today, kind of a cool agnostic, right? Uh, but what first intrigued him about Brideshead was the beauty of it. And, and Brideshead, the manor house in that story, is, is evocative of the church, I think. Christ is head of his bride, the church, and all that. Um, it was the beauty of Brideshead that first intrigued them. And I find that's a good way into the hearts of people today. Mm. So I have to ask you, of course, you're a shepherd of a diocese, and yep. then you have a very broad outreach to millions through social media. So we have time for about one more question. I'm going to pull this one. It's a little bit different topic, and that is, yep. since you have such influence over social media, do you have or what is your theology of social media as a means to help counter some of these things that you're experiencing? Uh, I, I love social media and I hate social media. So, I mean, I, I'm well aware of the dark side of it. I, I, I live with it all the time. But I'll tell you theologically what I would say. I said this at the um, Synod on Young People. I was a delegate to that four years ago. And I said precisely at a time when so many of the young people are disaffiliating, they're not coming to our institutions. You know, they're not coming readily to our parishes and, and church functions and lectures. But through God's strange providence, we've been given this tool where we can move out into their world. You know, when I first started doing um, YouTube videos, 2007, I, I had no idea. Would anyone watch these things? No idea, but we just launched them out there. And before I knew it, I'm getting, you know, emails from a sailor in the, in the China Sea, and I'm getting emails from Latin America. And you realize, boy... Filton Sheen would have given his right arm for this technology, you know, that we can be 24-7 all over the world and the seeds can go out, which indeed they have. So I guess that's my theology of it is that God, I believe, has given us a means to address people precisely at a time when it's really hard for the church to address them. Mm. Well, Your Excellency, we thank you so much for taking the time to be with us tonight. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, everybody. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. 
It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.